Our first scripture reading today comes from the epistle to the Colossians, chapter 1. Listen now for God's word to us from Holy Scripture. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers and sisters in Christ in Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. In our prayers for you, we always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, for we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. You have heard of this hope before in the word of the truth, the gospel that has come to you. Just as it is bearing fruit and growing in the whole world, so it has been bearing fruit among yourselves from the day you heard it and truly comprehended the grace of God. This you learned from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant. He is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf, and he has made known to us your love in the Spirit. For this reason, since the day we heard it, we have not ceased praying for you and asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of God's will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so that you may lead lives worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him as you bear fruit in every good work and as you grow in the knowledge of God. May you be made strong with all the strength that comes from his glorious power and may you be prepared to endure everything with patience while joyfully giving thanks to the Father who has enabled you to share in the inheritance of the saints in the light. He has rescued us from the power of darkness. Oh. A transformer. Oh. That was the powers. I, it happened when I said the powers of darkness. It was a little. <laughs> okay. He has rescued us from the powers of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And our gospel reading comes from Luke chapter 10, a very familiar story, the story of the Good Samaritan. Just then, a lawyer stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, what is written in the law? What do you read there? He answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have given the right answer. Do this and you will live. But wanting to justify himself, he asked Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell into the hands of robbers who stripped him, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. 
Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, while traveling near him, came, but a Samaritan, while traveling, came near him, and when he saw him, he was moved with pity. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, having poured oil and wine on them. Then he put him on his own animal, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day, he took out two denarii, gave them to the innkeeper, and said, Take care of him, and when I come back, I will repay you whatever more you spend. Which of these three, do you think, was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? He said, the one who showed him mercy. Jesus said to him, go and do likewise. This is the word of the Lord. I couldn't find a better description of the road from Jerusalem to Jericho than the one that Dr. Martin Luther King set out in his mountaintop speech to sanitation workers on the eve of his assassination. Wondering why the priest and the Levite didn't stop to help the man who'd been beaten and robbed by thieves, King speculates. I'm going to tell you what my imagination tells me. It's possible that those men were afraid. You see, the Jericho Road is a dangerous road. I remember when Mrs. King and I were first in Jerusalem. We rented a car and drove from Jerusalem down to Jericho. And as soon as we got on that road, I said to my wife, I can see why Jesus used this as the setting for his parable. It's a winding, meandering road. It's really conducive for ambushing. You start out in Jerusalem, which is about 1,200 feet above sea level. And by the time you get down to Jericho 15 or 20 minutes later, you're about 22 feet below sea level. That's a dangerous road. In the days of Jesus, it came to be known as the bloody pass. The man who was the victim of the robbery was not out for a quiet country walk on a Sunday afternoon. He must have had some urgent business to risk walking along that road by himself. His worst fears must have been realized when the robbers attacked him and left him bleeding by the roadside. Jesus' followers Surely, listening intently for Jesus' response to the clever lawyer who's trying to trip him up, they would have been aware of the notoriety of that road, the bloody pass. It's a great story starter. A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. The ancient equivalent to, she set out alone to walk the lonely path through the woods. The audience just knows that something bad is going to happen. Jesus is an accomplished storyteller, and he gets his audience listening. 
knowing that this will be a good story. We are immediately engaged when we hear stories that arouse our fears, stories that speak of danger. But Jesus' stories, though they may have us on the edge of our seats, are anything but predictable, especially when you know a little history of the times in which he lived. We don't, of course, know from the text the ethnicity of the man who was robbed, but we can assume that he was Jewish, since Jesus' audience would have been Jewish. The telling of the parable was set in motion by a Jewish lawyer, one of the ruling class closely connected with Jewish religious law. A priest and a Levite were the first people Jesus chose to have walked by and decide to leave the victim dying by the side of the road. They, like the lawyer, were officers of the synagogue or temple, holy people who were, in theory, close to God. Back to Dr. King's speech. He speculates next on what might have been going through the minds of these first two characters in Jesus' story. King says, As, And you know, it's possible that the priest and the Levite looked over at that man on the ground and wondered if the robbers were still around. Or it's possible that they felt that the man on the ground was merely faking and he was acting like he'd been robbed and hurt in order to seize them over there, to lure them there for quick and easy seizure. And so the first question that the priest asked, the first question that the Levite asked was, if I stop and help this man, what will happen to me? King is kind to these two, I think. He gives them credit for being very human in their fear of violence being perpetrated on them. Who wouldn't be afraid? Look what happened to this man. The same could very likely happen to me. I'd better get out of here as quickly as possible. Now help is supposed to come from God or God's people in time of trouble. I will not be as kind to them as Dr. King was. As representatives of God, this priest and this Levite should have stopped to help. Torah, or Jewish law, required them to love their neighbor as their own selves. The golden rule, it's pretty clear. Don't leave someone lying there in the dirt, dying. Well, perhaps I can be a little more charitable. Perhaps they were thinking, I'll send some officers of the law back this way when I get down to Jericho. But it's hard to excuse them. As ministers of God, they should have tended a dying man. They should not have left him alone. They should, at the very least, comforted someone who was dying. Dr. King continues, summing up the question for a faithful Christian. Remember that Dr. King has just said, 
And so the first question that the priest asked and the Levite asked was, if I stop to help this man, what will happen to me? Dr. King goes on to say, but then the good Samaritan came by and he reversed the question. If I do not stop to help this man, what will happen to him? Again, if I do not stop to help this man, what will happen to him? This is the true face of compassion, of neighborliness, of genuine hospitality. I have to say how proud I am of the children and their answers to my question this morning. They know, they know they should love God. They know they should love Jesus. They know they should love their neighbor. And they know they should love one another. That shows to really good teaching in Sunday school and at home. And I am so proud of the children for the, for the answers that they gave today. The Samaritan, whom Jesus does not label as good, that's our later title for the Samaritan, he sets aside all thoughts of his own safety to help someone who is in dire circumstances. He sees the humanity of the wounded man. We have seen, oh, so tragically this week, what happens when people fail to see the humanity of the other person. When fear or anger dominate, it becomes impossible to see that the people in front of us are just that, people with lives, careers, families, and the whole range of human feelings. When fear rules, all the police officer sees is a black man who might be a potential threat. When anger rules, all the sniper can see is a white cop with a gun. And then real people suffer so very tragically and so very terribly. Our whole nation suffers. Understanding breaks down and fear of more and increased levels of violence is everywhere. Now, you have to know a little more about the history of the relationship between Jews and Samaritans to fully understand the impact of Jesus' parable at the time. The Jews of Galilee and, and of Judea did not get along with the Samaritans. They considered them neither Jews nor Gentiles. Tensions ran deep and had existed for centuries. John Dominic Crossan writes, that tension started when Israel split into separate northern and southern kingdoms in the late 900s BCE. It intensified when the Assyrian Empire captured the northern kingdom in the late 700s BCE, and the Babylonian Empire captured the southern kingdom in the early 500s BCE. It was an estrangement between descendants of the same ancestors, 
But by the first century, it had hardened into ethnic, political, and religious animosity within the land of Israel. The actions of the Good Samaritan defy all the conventional assumptions of the time that someone who is generally despised by the people listening to Jesus should prove to be the one who is obeying God's laws of compassion and hospitality would have profoundly shaken the foundations of everyone's traditional and cultural beliefs. I got to wondering what the equivalent of this kind of hospitality might be. Perhaps a Jew in the 1930s in Germany offering sustenance and aid to an injured Nazi. Or a Catholic IRA sympathizer rescuing a British soldier in the 1970s. And just this week, there was a news report out of the West Bank. An Israeli family had been attacked by terrorists, Palestinian terrorists. Their car lay upside down in the road when a Palestinian doctor stopped to help the wounded, saving the life of one of the passengers. The doctor, Ali Shruk, was on his way to Ramadan prayers and said he did not think in terms of Israelis and Palestinians, but just in terms of his work as a physician. He saw a need and, like the Good Samaritan, thought not of his own safety, but of what might happen to the injured people if he passed by. His actions overcame difference and prejudice to see the humanity of the people in need. So Jesus tells us this marvelous story of help for a wounded and dying man, help that comes from an unexpected source. Crossan writes that Jesus' parables were not, on the whole, simply examples of how we should behave towards one another, though they do serve that function on one level. He calls them challenge parables. They surprise us. They wake us up. They challenge us to take stock of our view of the world and see life through a different lens. Jesus came to this earth to challenge the status quo, to proclaim a new order of things, to challenge everything we think we know about fairness and success, about love, and about life itself. There's something that's particularly moving about the kind of compassion that the Good Samaritan shows, this kind of hospitality. If you've ever served or worked with people from another culture or people from another walk of life, you will know that there are often barriers to overcome. Trust must be built and nurtured. One of the Israeli women whom Dr. Shruk helped and rescued said that at first she thought he was coming over to the car to kill them. Her cultural expectations made it very hard for her to trust. Was the injured traveler on the road trembling at the thought of what might happen to him as the Samaritan approached? 
Did he think he might be planning to finish him off? His help came from an unexpected source. Once again, Jesus changes our way of thinking about the world and challenges us to reach and build trust where there currently is little. I began a conversation in my sermon last week about the needs of the community here in Jasper. I'd like us to continue that conversation. I don't have to tell you that there is much poverty here in this county. Hamilton County has one of the highest poverty rates in the state. 40% of Hamilton County's children live in poverty. 40%, one of the highest rates in the state. There are so many of our neighbors waiting by the roadside to be helped. Many are waiting for those who have access to needed resources to recognize their humanity and to respond to these fellow human beings by offering our help. We are the privileged ones, to be sure. We may not be wealthy, but we're comfortable, we're housed, and we're fed. Our children and grandchildren are well-educated, and they get good and timely medical care. They have hope for a good, happy, productive future. Let's accept Jesus' challenge and do the unpredictable. Let's stop by the road and offer aid. Let's begin to build the trust that is needed to tend the wounded. Let's offer Christ's love to the ones who are hurting. Amen. And now let us stand and affirm our belief in Jesus Christ by saying together the Apostles' Creed. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sitteth on the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. I believe in the Holy Ghost, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. And now let us close our worship by singing hymn number 377, Lord, you have come to the lakeshore.